Welcome. You're on air with Ella, where we share simple strategies and tips from people who are doing something better than we are. Whether it's wellness or relationships to just living better and with more energy, or changing your mindset to accomplish more in your own life and succeeding however you define it. This is where we share the best of what we're learning from the experts, and we're learning more every day. Live better, start now. Let's go. Hey, you're on the air with Ella, and it is my pleasure to introduce you today to Dr. Rand McLean. Hey, Rand, how are you? I'm doing great. Thanks for asking. How about you? I'm so excited to have you on all the way from California to join us today because the work that you're doing is something that is of great, great interest to me. And I'm really looking forward to sharing what you do and some of your wisdom with the world. But first, could you do me a favor and tell us who you are and what you do? I'm Rand McLean, and I'm a doctor who practices sports and regenerative medicine. Now, that said, I often add that I I don't really see sick people. I see people who want to optimize their health. For the most part, I see people who have gotten to a place in life where they want to make the most of it. So we're optimizing. What would you say your area of focus and your area of expertise now is allowing that it might, you might have different areas of focus and seasons. What are you all about right now? <laughs> yeah. Jack of all trades, master of none, right? Well, I would say without a doubt, I focus on uh, hormone replacement because whether it's a day from now, years from now, most of us, if not all of us are going to end up in that bucket, meaning that we're all going to see our our hormones decline, whether you choose to do something about it or not is up to you. But uh, that's a big part of my practice for, for men and women. Along with that, other aspects of regenerative medicine I practice with use of stem cells, for example, we have PRP, of course, which has been around for a long time, platelet-rich plasma therapy. Uh, different modes of treatment that help us reverse aging, as we might call it, you know, improve our biological age, like we were talking about before we got on the air. So uh, that's really the the gist of it. But it it really, without the hormone replacement, it's difficult to do the things and get as much out of them without the leverage from the hormones. So I guess that's the best way to put it. So we kind of start there. Well, I am very interested in deep diving into hormone replacement therapy with you. Um, Some people call it like menopause support therapy because they're trying to rebrand it, if you will. But you work with both men and women, and I want to dive in deep with you on those topics. But I have a couple of shorter sort of rapid fire questions for you first before we dive in, if, if you're up for it. Sure, I'm ready. Okay, my first question is, what the hell made you go to medical school at 37 years old? I love it part inspiration and part desperation, right? I, I, uh, I've always loved it, but uh, I found out I was going to be a dad and felt like I really had to settle into a career that I was going to stick with. In hindsight, this is my ninth career. I was a CPA out of school originally. You can imagine how that wasn't going to stick for very long. Um, I, I decided to stick with medicine and, and that and really uh, everything kind of came together and made it easy for me to make the decision. It was not easy, but it was simple. I think this is fascinating. And if you'll humor me for a moment, Rand, we've been talking so much about second half career pivots or or not buying into sunk cost fallacy and committing to whatever you're doing just because you've been doing it. So we've been talking about a, that a lot lately. And when you look at your bio, you are a Venn diagram of a human being for sure. And it is so inspirational to me, but also I just love to share examples of what's possible. And the fact that you were, first of all, you worked for Deloitte, 
and you got out. Congratulations. Okay. With all due deference and respect for Deloitte, a great group of guys. It just we love you. We love you, Deloitte. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> we're, we're, we're a pro consulting family here. But were you a policeman? A reserve officer. Yeah. You're a reserve officer. Still. So a man in uniform. Anyway, you skin that cat. You were a stunt man. Yep. Long okay. time ago. All right. Naturally, obviously. So so the next obvious step was clearly medical school. So I just want to share with everyone that at age 37, you've begun a journey. Now, a lot of people know this already, but medical school is not four years. Medical school is four years. But if you care to practice medicine, you're in it for anywhere from six, seven, eight, nine, up to 12 years of training and sometimes more depending on the specialty. So just kudos to you for doing what you're meant to do. Well, and I thought you were going to go all the way and and state that really it's for life. These days, because there's so much information out there, and this is part of the reason for the book, if, if you stall, you know, you're going backwards because we're we're getting more and more information at a logarithmic rate, which makes it hard to do anything but specialize. But certainly if you enjoy the medicine, it's it's a little easier to, a lot easier, I would argue, to keep up, so to speak. But if you're not researching the latest and greatest, you're falling behind. So it is really a lifetime I'm finding of study, not just a school. Your book that you reference is called Cheating Death. So we will make that easy for everyone to get to, but you go into a lot of topics related to restoration, to longevity. Could I hit you with a couple rapid fire questions before we get into HRT? Sure. Okay. What are the most fundamental things any human should be doing if they care about health span, not just lifespan? Getting adequate amounts of sleep, nutrition, and exercise. That's an easy one. And then I I would say that maybe the one that's not so easy that I I probably didn't emphasize enough in the book, but uh, human interaction. And I know it sounds kind of frou-frou and non-scientific, but we have a lot of scientific support that shows, you know, we are humans and we do depend upon that interaction for our well-being. So that's another thing that, especially with the life that we've been living up until COVID, where we've all got, you know, the cubicles we're in and we go from one box to another at the end of the day, uh, and then arguably made worse in some respects by COVID, where we were stuck at home and couldn't be with everyone else. We we definitely see the 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 consequences of not being able to do that and the benefits of being able to, you know, hang out with our fellow man. Yeah, it's so interesting that you say that because we've been talking a lot about connection on this show and how at this stage in the game, you have to be super intentional about like making friends is like dating, you know, in some other phase in your life. Like there's this vulnerability about it and you have to kind of like ask somebody if they want to be friends in a way. And we've been talking about putting ourselves back out there again to make those connections. And I love that you're making this connection, which is that it's not just for, it's not just for like a slight uplift in your quality of life. Like it is integral to a healthy, longer, more fulfilling life, but it like it has a direct correlation now to your actual health span. I actually find that I mean, no one's out there making friends so that they live longer. I don't think. I think I think they're doing it for the sheer enjoyment of the experience. But I do find it fascinating that we're actually wired that way. Absolutely. And if you do look at the evidence, we don't have a bunch of centenarians, but the people that live longer, we see the science behind it supports. They all have a network of family and friends that keeps them going, no doubt about it, without exception. 
Now, I want to get into a, a specific topic that we actually have never really talked about on the show before, even though I'm interested in it personally and have been for years. And that is body restoration using whole body cold or heat, actually. Can we talk about both? And can you overview the science? And then I'll ask you some questions about it. Why is it important? Well, if you want to go top level, I'd say one of the most easily identified aspects of it is chemically anyway, physiologically is that, and despite the name, it works with both hot and cold, the release of heat shock proteins, which have a benefit in the body, but also next level down, although you could argue it's equally as beneficial and and a lot more obvious is you feel better. If you jump in the sauna for 20 minutes, typically you're going to come out feeling better. Your blood is flowing, as they say, and it's worth having gone through the process. Ditto for whole body cryotherapy. Even if it's only three minutes, three and a half minutes of something very cold, you tend to come out feeling much better than when you went in. You're also releasing some uh, what we call norepinephrine. That's an excitatory hormone. It's got a feel good feeling attached to it uh, to be redundant. And um, I I have never seen anybody come out of infrared sauna or any type of sauna and or uh, cryotherapy saying, boy, I wish I hadn't done that. I'll never do that again. So, you know, there's the obvious and then the not so obvious, or I guess the underpinnings of why it works. Well, let's talk about the one that feels easier. (laughs) That is whole body heat. So I love infrared sauna. I try to do it like three times a week. Is frequency critically important? Or if people have access to just go once a week or a few times a month, is that beneficial in an acute sense? You know, it's kind of like with exercise, any anything counts, you know, whether it's once a month, once a week, it's going to help you. There is like with everything. And it's, it's rare. I can say everything. I think I can say everything in this case, you know, the, the hormesis of it, in other words, you know, too little is not good enough and too much is, is, is not good. Assuming it's reasonable dosing and you're staying hydrated, et cetera, et cetera. It is one of those where more is better. So Every day is going to be most likely better for the average person. And when I say average, I'm not talking about a Gaussian curve. I'm talking a very steep curve. So most of us than once a week or twice a week. So there's a there's a linear effect, an additive effect there, and it and it duplicates what we would call zone two training. Okay, for the for the athletes out there that are paying attention to this sort of thing, zone two is easily described as uh, a situation in which you can converse to your training partner if you have one uh, without much difficulty. You can finish full sentences, etc. And this is essential. And a lot of the centenarians we referred to earlier do this on a regular basis. And we think it definitely contributes to longevity, if for no other reason that you're staying functional. Your muscles are still working functionally. You're keeping the muscles on on your frame. But that's what you're, you could argue, you're, you're, you're duplicating with the infrared sauna. Because you're not going in there and your heart's not beating out of your chest at zone five levels. You're, if you check, you're probably at about zone two or less. And um, obviously, you're not having to put out the the effort that you would if you were using your muscles. For most of us, it's probably better to get your exercise in, of course. But uh, this is a good surrogate if you're able to do it. So a question that might be of interest literally only to me, Rand, is does timing matter? <laughs> so like if I do a good workout, is there any benefit to then immediately getting into the infrared sauna versus just doing it cold, so to speak, some other time? I haven't seen any, it's a great question, actually. I haven't seen any research that would say, don't get into an infrared sauna. I have seen research that says, don't get into a cryotherapy or a machine or any sort of uh, cryotherapy because you want to let your body 
as it were, recognize that you've done something that requires an adjustment. So you don't want to quell that inflammation that you've engendered by a workout. Say your weight workout uh, today that you're planning it because you're indoors or if you haven't already done it. Uh, give it at least a couple hours before jumping into a cold plunge or something like that to let your body register. Okay, we've got some work to do here. Okay, well, a lot of people don't have at-home access to an infrared sauna, and they might not have access to cryotherapy near them. Do you have any suggestions for heat and cold exposure at home? Is that Can that ever be as effective? Absolutely. Cryotherapy is a fancy way of saying using cold as therapy, right? So uh, one of the things I did, uh, and I have a cryotherapy machine in my office to the tune of over $250,000 so that a lot of people can come in and enjoy it, right? I mean, but that's not something you're going to put in your home if you have a pool and you live up here like I do in Malibu and it gets very cold in the winter, it gets down into the 40s, uh, the, the water temperature, that that can act as your own cryotherapy. But if you just have a bathtub, that works too. When I first got into this, I bought on Amazon an ice maker for probably $159.99 or something like that. And instead of having to stop at the the Seven Eleven or whatever on the way home, the gas station to get you know 60 pounds of ice, you can have it generated in the comfort of your own home, so to speak, and just dump it in the tub. And if you stay in there for 5, 10, 12 minutes, not too long because you can actually suffer hypothermia, that's your own cold therapy right in the privacy of your own bathtub. And a lot of people who would be more willing to try heat therapy are resistant to cold therapy. And by a lot of people, I mean me, okay, because (laughs) it is so miserable, but that is the whole point, right? The resilience in doing that and then the instant recovery from it, isn't that actually what is good for you? Am I making that up? It's your body's recognizing that, and you could call it, you know, it it looks like a threat to your body. It's it's a major change. Let's put put it that way. Threat sounds terrible, but it wants to adjust for this onslaught of cold. Okay. And I believe they still think it's somewhere between 25 degrees uh, difference in, in skin temperature. That's all it takes. And that's why that 150 degrees below zero exposure, and some machines go to 200 below, uh, is enough in just two to three minutes to, to tell your body, uh-oh, better react here. That's all it takes. Now, does it need to be uncomfortable? Not necessarily, but one of the tricks you can use, I, like you perhaps, am sensitive to that. I don't like it. I'm getting my temperature reduced for the most part across my body, but my feet don't like it. So get some neoprene booties. Um, for, for, for men and women, arguably, for uh, our private parts, you can also use uh, neoprene. You can make your own, which I did. Uh, for guys, you can use a, a athletic cup and line it with, I'm serious, uh, line it with neoprene. For a female, you don't need the cup part. You just can get your own uh, neoprene. If that makes you uncomfortable, ditto for your hands. You could use gloves if your hands don't like the cold. When we use cryotherapy at the office in the uh, uh, US cryotherapy machine, the electric uh, cryotherapy, uh, we have patients put on a a little beanie and of course cover the feet and ankles and the genitalia. So you can still get it without going the benefits in other words, without being that uncomfortable. Now heat is a different situation. And uh, you know, you asked me earlier, I'm not sure what we can do at home other than, you know, a really hot bath. I think with a hot bath, because you're immersed in it uh, rather than just getting doused with it, so to speak, you can approximate that. I mean, if, if you've got hot enough water at your house and you can see yourself or feel yourself sweating, uh, you're doing something similar. You're, you're getting your blood uh, pumping, your heart pumping, and you can check to see, okay, am I in uh, you know, zone two or not? Throw a little Epsom salt in there and call it a day. 
Yeah, well, and be careful with Epsom salt. Always, always, always stay hydrated. Do not go in uh, really either one of these if you're under the influence of alcohol, which can dehydrate you uh, and obviously dull the senses, but uh, that's kind of a duh. Uh, also, uh, you know, another duh would be if you're pregnant, don't necessarily go in there unless you check with your doctor to say, hey, is it okay? Yes. And while Dr. Rand McLean is a doctor, I am not, and neither of us are advising you right now. We're just sharing information. Okay. Right, Ding. Right. Thank you. <laughs> okay. <laughs> you know, I have another PSA and this is really important because I got into cryotherapy. Uh, this was, I don't know, four years ago, not relevant, got into cryotherapy and you do that generally nude, except for some of the tips that Rand is sharing with us. And someone had told me that, what is it? Nitrogen? Well, there's nitrogen and electric. The, the problem with nitrogen, real quick, is just it, it can be concentrated and there's the risk, however small, that you might burn an area of the skin. Whereas with the electric, we're not going that uh, deep in the temperature and it tends to circulate more homogeneously than, than the nitrogen. I did not know there was electric. Oh, yeah. I think, well, obviously, I think they're the, the better of the two. Yeah. Well, I'll share another reason why they're the better of the two, because somebody told me that the nitrogen that you're standing in, it, it almost gives off. It's like fumes. It's like um, it's like smoke. But of course, it isn't. It's neither of those things. But they said it was also good for your face. So I sort of leaned forward to put my face in the cryo machine. I passed out, fell against oh the door and flew across the room and woke up utterly naked on this hardwood floor in the cryo therapy place because I breathed it in for one second. I had no idea. So I, when, when somebody came in the room, cause they heard the noise, I mean, I just started dying laughing, but it was it, it, not recommend. Do not recommend one out of five stars. Do not do what I did. Well, and it might've been a vasovagal reaction that, that occurred. And that's one of the issues with a lot of the nitrogen machines that you're covered, except for your head. One of the benefits for the electric is you can get truly full body therapy. And I'm not pitching this because I'm getting a free toaster from US cryotherapy or any electric companies. I just think it's a, it's a decision that you can make that makes more sense that way. But that that might have been what, what happened. And that's just one of the reasons why I, I think uh, doing it with electric and whole body might be better. Okay, now that I've aired that on the interwebs for the rest of time, let's get into our <laughs> Good next story. <laughs> yeah, thanks so much. No, all right, let's talk about hormone replacement therapy, bioidentical hormone replacement. Rand, this is a subject that continues still to be rife with controversy. Can you help me put that to bed from your expert point of view, please? Yeah, so the short of it is we base much of what we've type of hormonal replacement, particularly estrogen. The problem is they used something called Premarin in the study. Premarin is short for pregnant mare urine as a source for the estrogen. It's roughly 50% equiline, which is the horse estrogen, and um, estradiol, which is also found in, in women. The problem is equiline is about a thousand times more potent on the human uterus, for example, as is estradiol. So you can see how we might have some issues with using something derived from a horse, right? And we did find that. Now, we found, say, a one in uh, 10,000 increase in uh, estrogen-sensitive cancers during this process. Also, uh, a similar risk increase of stroke. But again, we're using something that's, that is not bioidentical, certainly. And so I think there's been a lot of misunderstanding based upon that. There's also another opinion that uh, 
found that they were using a synthetic progesterone as well, which if you have a uterus or arguably whether or not you have a uterus uh, still or not, is important to counter the effects of estrogen building up the lining of the uterus as is normal. So uh, we've got some flaws, I would argue, not in the study itself, but better said in the interpretation of it. Now, since then, we've been using bioidentical hormones where we use estriol, a naturally occurring, arguably anti-carcinogenic form of estrogen. At worst, it's neutral. And estradiol, again, the, the, the human um, estrogen. And we haven't had cases where we can point to, oh, yeah, you've got uh, estrogen-sensitive cancers because of this. We haven't done this study, like I say, that's similar to the Women's Health Initiative, but uh, we have no evidence to suggest that this is an issue. Now, that said, it gets a little more complicated, and I'll keep it brief, but essentially, we have identified at least a couple of these bad estrogens, we'll call them, estrogens that we know can promote cancer. Uh, for those of you that want to be on Jeopardy, 4-hydroxyestrone uh, and 16-alpha-hydroxyestrone, they can be converted from the good. The good news is that we can convert the bad to the good and we can prevent the, the good from converting to the bad by eating a lot of cruciferous vegetables, things like broccoli, cauliflower, Brussels sprouts, your mustard greens. Uh, if you don't like those very much, we can get the active ingredient from those in supplement form. Uh, we call it DIM, which is short for methane, And uh, we know that that substance, as does another substance, they can both interconvert uh, I3C, uh, indole-3-carbonyl. Those will protect you. So what I recommend is if you're going to embark on a hormone replacement therapy that uses estrogen and arguably also one that uses only testosterone because estrogen is made from testosterone, let's use these substances for the doubt, as they would say in Spanish, por la duda, right? Uh, just to make sure that because we don't have studies yet, even though the theory is sound, we protect ourselves nevertheless, even though I don't suspect there's any issue. And it's not just me. Uh, there's plenty of research out there and other researchers who who support what I'm saying to you, uh, just to make sure you don't undertake any un unnecessary risk. And, and one other uh, approach is to add uh, fish oil, which is uh, an antiplatelet uh, aggregator. So something that blocks the, the coagulation of, of these uh, uh, platelets, right? Uh, to protect against that very, very small, uh, supposed increase in in stroke uh, that comes with the use of this Premarin rather than uh, the bioidentical hormones that we're talking about. Okay, so this is a font of information. Let's break some of it down. And one one other thing, not to take us too far backward, but on that study, my understanding is that the population itself is questionable in terms of the interpretation of the results because the population of the study was women who had been postmenopausal for X number of years. I certainly do not recall exactly. So it's it was a little too much too late in terms of some more modern day definitions. Do you have any comment about that? Yes. And, and you make a great point. And there's someone who I respect a lot in the industry who recently, I think fairly recently looked at that. But to your point, yes, they, 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 there's some evidence to suggest that if you go into menopause or you know perimenopause using HRT, hormone replacement therapy, you're much better off than you wait until afterwards, which I think is what you're what you're pointing out. In which case, there are some that actually look like increase their risk of, of bad outcomes, we'll call them, for those patients. And again, you, you identify as postmenopausal HRT use. The problem with that is, what are we presupposing? The people that were willing to go into the study 
may or may not have been more likely to approach this proactively? You know, was there already something in play? I'm not convinced that it's ever too late as long as you do it properly is my point. Okay. And so you're saying that if somebody approaches this therapy and they actually, they're in it, they're they're engaged in HRT, you're saying that as a catch-all, if you will, that taking DIM and taking a high-quality fish oil might be a good idea. Like you're saying that might mitigate some of the possible potential risks? The only thing I would modify about that is the potential risks yeah, I'd say with an abundance of of caution, almost you know overly so, because of what I said earlier about we're comparing apples with oranges. Premarin is is really not the best choice, and we can easily theoretically see that as well as practically in hindsight. And, and given that we don't have a study, but you know with anecdotal use, we don't have evidence of the bioidenticals causing cancer. That this would just be extra extra protection which by the way, comes with added benefit anyway. People get breast cancer who don't do any hormones, for example, estrogen sensitive cancer. So using DIM is protective anyway. So is a good quality, like you say, something that's boasts about being third-party tested, a good quality fish oil to protect against clot, which can be because of the way you chose your parents. You could have a Leiden factor five uh, on both genes. You're homologous for this, which means you're at, I believe it's an 80% greater chance of blood clots. And this would only be beneficial for you anyway. Okay. I have a question. I don't think I know what Premarin is. Tell me what that is. So that's the one that Premarin is the, the synthetic estrogen that they were using the oh. pregnant mare urine derived from obviously a horse's urine that was the equine back in the stuff. day. Yeah. Okay. 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 I got you. So what you're saying is the bioidenticals now are just the quality is apples and oranges, not comparable. Most women, I'm going to say of a certain age, are not going to be harmed by taking dim or a high quality fish oil. I, I, this is a HIPAA violation, but <laughs> dim makes me break out and I don't break out. Like I never break out and dim makes me break out. If, if anyone else has had that reaction, do you have any idea why that would happen? Also, I eat a lot of plants. Well, I'd have to go back. One of the problems with that is um, I'd have to delve into that a little bit more to find out if that's coincidental, because I can't think of a mechanism of action in which that would occur. The, you know, breakouts tend to happen because of an elevation of something called dihydrotestosterone, DHT for short. And as I said earlier, estrogen is made from testosterone. If you were somehow blocking that conversion, which DIM does to a small degree, uh, DIM blocks an enzyme in the liver called aromatase, which is what can helps uh what catalyzes the conversion from testosterone into estrogen so if you were blocking that therefore the extra or the testosterone that would have normally converted estrogen then converts to dihydrotestosterone that's the only mechanism by which i could understand that that probably works now what you could do to test this theory is use something that also blocks the conversion from testosterone into dihydrotestosterone. We could use, if you want to stick with over-the-counter stuff, you could use some saw palmetto, for example, with Pygeum. These are over-the-counter supplements and see if that clears up the, the problem. And so you can get away with using, uh, well, in this case, both. Okay. So for everyone else who's like pulling out their medical glossaries, let me break this down because I'll put all of this in the show notes. Saw palmetto with what? Pygeum, P-Y-G-E-U-M. 
All right. And that's just, yes, that's just an over-the-counter supplement. Okay. Mm -hmm. All right. That is super interesting. All right. Let's talk a little bit about when people come to see you. By the way, do men ever take any kind of bioidentical hormone replacement? Absolutely. Well, of course they do. Testosterone. Duh. Yeah. (laughs) My brain was fully on like perimenopause for a second. So it broke. Okay. So if a patient comes to you, man or woman, how do you evaluate them for whether this is a good idea for them? And I'm going to ask you from their point of view, what might they be experiencing that should drive them to someone like you to have this conversation in the first place? It is absolutely based upon the patient, not the numbers, right? You treat people, not numbers. So if they come in with complaints of a decrease. And I stop here and say, compared to themselves earlier, not to their peers, because that's not fair. We've met 80-year-olds that that aren't on bioidenticals that clearly have enough energy, they're bouncing off the walls, doesn't mean that they have plenty of testosterone. That's just their personality, their makeup. So a decrease in energy, you comparing to you, decrease in libido, okay? Decrease in just a general sense of well-being. Testosterone is is nature's antidepressant. But one of the main differentiators that you can't get around just based upon your personality is your inability with the drop in testosterone, particularly to manipulate your body composition, meaning what you used to do, you know, you're an athlete, you're going to face this. And, and, and you're the, the, you're the type of person that comes in way too late because athletes know all the tricks. Yeah. The pro athletes, the elite, elite amateurs or another group, and they come in and they go, uh, you know, it's 60 or something. They go, I, I wave my white flag, you know, which is rare for any athlete. I have done everything I know. You know, I've doubled up on the workouts. I've restricted my carbohydrates, my starchy carbohydrates, even more so. I stopped drinking all these things and it doesn't work anymore. I give up. What can you do for me, Rand? It's unfortunate, but we get past that real quick that they didn't come in a decade earlier or more, but it's because they lost that leverage that testosterone provides. It's supporting the muscle, which is arguably synonymous with metabolism because it's a liability when it comes to calories, right? So if you don't have the muscle there, that uses up those calories that you know we call muscle the sugar sink, uh, protective against diabetes, literally, then uh, you're going to start packing it on, at which point, again, somebody who wants to maintain that level of activity into their 60s, it, you're just going to run a, r- a runway. You know, you're going to have to face this sooner or later. Does that make sense? It does. So basically, when people start to feel like they're running on an empty tank, whether it's strength or power or libido or just generally missing their vitality, I should think. Mm -hmm. Um, And I'm going to hazard a guess that most of them that do come see you probably could have come in a bit sooner. Yeah, unfortunately. Uh, And, you know, look, it comes from a good place, I argue, almost invariably where, you know, somebody says, well, you know, I can figure this out. I can gut it out. And, and you know, it's, it's human nature to go, well, why do I feel so tired? Well, of course, you know, I'm getting a little older or, you know, maybe it's because I worked out a little harder than I should have yesterday. And we rationalize in that regard and, you know, keep a, a stiff upper lip, uh, which again, that's great. But it's one of those things where invariably when someone gets on the replacement therapy, they go, oh, I wish I had done this 10 years ago because they've been fighting an uphill battle. Okay. Just a couple of smaller questions about this topic. Let's talk about dose. How hard is it to figure out what dose works? Because I would think it was like dials that needed tweaking, but you tell me. Well, you're right. We can fine tune it. That's where the dials come in. But the gross tuning is most people fit a a starting dose that's the same for everybody. Most people. Then you can do a little fine tuning. I call them you know, cheap dates or expensive dates. If you're burning through your testosterone, if you metabolize it quickly, obviously you're an expensive date. Uh, and of course the opposite is true. Uh, that's where the fine tuning comes in. But for the most part, 
to be specific for a female, if you're using an esterified form of testosterone that you inject, you're going to be injecting typically once per week, 20 milligrams of an ester called testosterone sipinate. And anthate is similar in terms of its half-life, it, it, the, the, the period over which you know gets metabolized. And um, that's pretty much a one-size-fits-all uh, with some tweaking uh, for, for certain ladies. And then men, it's 200 milligrams. So there's roughly a, a tenfold difference between men and women. Now, if you opt for a daily cream or gel, then we're going to use actually that 20 milligrams on a daily basis because it's not a sterified, meaning it's not time-released, okay? And ditto for, for men, uh, it's 200 milligrams per day starting dose. Um, I will add that uh, women, for the reason that it seems to be do- it seems to be dose related, they they obviously need ten times less than a, uh, than a guy can get away with either the uh, once a week injection or the daily dose of the cream slash gel uh, without seeing a difference in efficacy. Guys, hands down, do better with a once a week injection of this time released form rather than the daily dose. Why? I, I know I can't explain why. I don't know. I, 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 I was just going to ask years. you that. Yeah. If you had a delivery method that you like the best, what's your take on pellets, testosterone pellets that are popular in some circles and quite maligned in others? Great question. And I think you hit it on the, the head. It's really the circle you're dealing with. And I don't mean to be disrespectful toward anyone when I say this, because it's going to come out sounding like the people who use pellets don't care, but, but they do, but it's just, I think it's the level of expectation that's there or not. So an athlete is not in my, my, uh, history is not going to be happy with pellets because the release of testosterone has not been perfected yet with pellets. I think it just comes down to that. So you, you have patients that classically say, well, you know, I've been doing this for a while. And I I say this because when you first get started, there's a, a period at which it takes roughly six weeks for your body to adjust to exogenous testosterone and go, oh, okay, this is what we're using from now on. Okay, I got it. After that, you're not naive to it anymore. You can use it, you can get your refills and you don't have to wait six weeks every time. But let's let's move ahead to the, say the second dosing of pellets. Patients will still go, oh God, I, I felt like it wasn't working for the first month. But then the second month, I was almost manic with energy. And then the, you know, the fourth month I was begging my doctor to please put more in because I was at bottom. It felt like the, the, the pattern just doesn't fit well for, for us yet. And they haven't perfected. They're getting better at it. So that I'm going to start trialing this yet again, uh, because they've improved the pellets, but that that's my biggest uh, knock on it. So someone who's say a, a golfer rather than a triathlete like yourself may not notice the difference as much, you know, uh, again, with all due respect to golfers, but I'm talking from physical exertion they may go, okay, this is good enough for me. And I like the fact that I only have to go in there every four months. But for most of the people that I see that are are, are a little more hard charging, uh, just just my my practice, they feel better on the the, the dosing that it, unfortunately requires more work, whether it's daily or weekly, but seems to work a lot better. Okay. That's really interesting because for those of you who don't know, the pellets are exactly what they sound like and they're injected into the buttock. So a little incision is made and, and for men, it's like a big packet, right? And for women, it would be smaller, I'm assuming, but anything again, from a, from a consumer point of view, not a medical one, anything that takes you on this hormonal roller coaster just intuitively strikes me as a no for me. And so I was just super interested in your take on that. Thank you for walking us through that. 
I have one more question for you, Rand. That is about nitric oxide, a subject I'm getting more and more interested in, but not necessarily educated on yet. Could you talk to us about, tell us what it is and why is it such a useful thing to know about and why does that matter? That's 75 questions. I'm going to leave it to you. Nitric oxide is something that opens up the blood vessels, okay? It relaxes the smooth muscle in blood vessels. We know about it in its application with men and all the what are called PD-5 inhibitor drugs like Viagra, uh, Cialis, these are the brand names, Levitra, uh, Stendra, uh, because it opens the blood flow, obviously, to the penis, but it's, it's more than that for men and women, okay? It opens blood flow, period. It was originally invented, uh, these drugs, I'm sorry, the PD-5 inhibitors I just mentioned, for pulmonary hypertension, which we don't need to go into the details of that, but we found as a side effect, this is what works. But I have to first say, if you really want to delve into this, the guy uh, who studied with the Nobel Prize winner, winner who, who went into nitric oxide study is Dr. Nathan Bryan, who I consider a friend, and he's very knowledgeable, has products that help you enhance the nitric oxide production. But speaking of that, how can you do it naturally? Eat your green leafies. Okay. Green leafy vegetables contain nitrates, which can convert to nitrites. Some foods have nitrites already, so you don't have to wait for the conversion. But that eventually gets converted in the system by two different avenues into nitric oxide. One, you can enhance by doing your exercise, okay? Because these are cells uh, inside the vasculature that create the nitric oxide again to, keep, to open up those blood vessels. Uh, the, the other way we do it is to eat these foods I referred to. And in the saliva, we have certain bacteria that make the conversion uh, begin the process of converting. And that's why Listerine, well, I'm going to get in trouble here, right? Uh, well, it's the truth. Uh, Listerine, which kills these bacteria, is probably not the best idea unless it's for short term because you had a dental procedure and you had to uh, fight the bacteria. You want to, you know, I'm never going to make it sterile, but you can, you know, reduce the bacteria in your mouth, therefore. But it's not a good long term play because we do need this nitric oxide. One of the things I mentioned in the book that's fascinating to me it was published in um, the journal Heart back in 2017. There's a study, and unfortunately, it used only med in this case, but it would apply to women just as well. Guys who took these PD5 inhibitors, in short, there was a relationship, a correlation between those men who had already had a, a one heart attack. There was a correlation between how many times they took the PD5 inhibitor per week and their all-cause mortality reduction of 81% in the in the top group. That's nuts. Let me put that in perspective. If I are doing what? What did they do? All they're taking is uh, one of the PD5 inhibitors like Viagra, Cialis, or, or Levitra. And, and for an athlete, particularly one at, at, uh, who's competing at, at altitude, this is something that you might consider taking too. It's not just for erectile function, obviously, is my point. It's for athletic enhancement. And, well, and you hear about this in some of the, the sports drinks, right? NO2 booster, those drinks. And that's why the, the athletes do it to get the pump, they call it, right? What well, also helps with opening up the blood vessels and, and getting oxygen where it needs to go when you're when you're doing your triathlon in, in Denver, Colorado, let's say. Right? I don't know. I might just eat beets. I don't know. <laughs> no, great. That's a great source of the ingestible ones. Yeah, that, that's the well-known one. Yeah. I've heard that breathing, focusing on nasal breathing can help uh, boost your nitric oxide production. Do you know anything about that? I don't. I'll have to look that one up. There are more receptors or something, something. I don't know. Well, I'll see if I can find something and link to that. So that's, again, another cheap and easy way. Okay. You have absolutely blown my mind. This cannot be our only conversation that we ever have oh. together, Rand. 
I hope it shows. I have a great time uh, talking about this. I probably go off on too many tangents, but I'd love to talk with you about it anytime. All right, Rand, thank you so much for your time today. We will definitely have you back. I know this show genned up a lot of questions for my listeners. So send them in and we'll get Dr. Rand back on. Thanks, Rand. Thank you. Okay, that's a wrap. I hope you enjoyed today's show and got something out of it that you can use. If you did and you want to learn more, find me on Instagram at onairwithella or get the show notes and all the links shared today at onairella.com. There's no with, it's just onairella.com. Thanks for listening. Thank you for sharing the show and thanks for inspiring me. You are quite simply awesome.